0: Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. When the Queen passed away, stunning contemporary portraits of Her Majesty appeared seemingly overnight on poster sites, the underground, bus shelters, in newspapers and on the front covers of publications like Time magazine. The striking images, including Lightness of Being, Where the Queen Has Her Eyes Closed, are the work of UK-based light artist Chris Levine. The National Portrait Gallery describes that particular portrait as the most evocative image of a royal by any artist. Two sittings took place in November 2003. Chris set up in the yellow drawing room at Buckingham Palace, commissioned by the Jersey Heritage Trust. His aim, to create the first ever holographic portrait of Elizabeth II to mark 800 years of allegiance to the crown by the island of Jersey. The Queen was wearing the priceless diamond diadem made in 1820 for George IV, the crown she wore in 1953 on her way to her coronation, and the one we see on court coins and stamps. Chris's other subjects include His Holiness the Dalai Lama, David Bowie, Kate Moss, Emma Thompson and Grace Jones who describes Chris as an atom in an excitable state. I am delighted to say that Chris joins me now. Chris, I've admired your work for a very long time actually so it's lovely to meet you. How are you?
1: Oh, thank you. Kind words. No, it's good to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. What inspired Grace Jones to give you that rather wonderful description of you as an atom in an excitable state?
1: Actually that was 3D from Massive Attack that described me like that. But Grace Jones, yes, he was always such a fan of hers for a long time, but I was I was I got a call completely out of the blue from Philip Tracy, the hat designer, and he said, you know, I'm art directing Grace's first live show in 10 years, would you like to light it? I think, well, you know, I'm not a lighting designer, but maybe I could create some modes in the show, the installations that we take it somewhere. And I said, when is it? He said, it's next week. (laughs) I think it was, you know, a year down the road or something. So yeah, no, my experience with Grace Jones, and I, I hope to develop it further, but it was quite something. She is truly, you know, living legend. Also, my muse for so many image makers and it was daunting, but I did the live show and it was a big success. I mean, the times wrote the next day in, in their review of the show that the moment that laser hit her crystal bowler, that was a defining moment in pop culture. It was a big moment for me. And it, after that, she asked, wow, wow, what else can you do? So then I got to do her portraits. and I directed a video and no, it was a, it was a real blessing to be able to work with her.
0: I was lucky enough to interview her a long time ago at the Cannes Film Festival and she's definitely a force to reckon with and somebody that really made a big impression on me actually as well. Of course, we're talking about you here in the introduction for the amazing portraits you took of the Queen, but you are essentially a light artist. It's the portraiture of the Queen that perhaps most of us know you for at the moment.
1: It is, but actually the commission, which came to me completely out the blue, was put forward. It was a commission by the island of Jersey. As you say, it was to mark 800 years of history. Jersey broke away from France, pledged allegiance to the crown, and the curator who was appointed to oversee that commission knew my work with light. So I'd done couple of portraits where I'd experimented working with really excellent holographers. It's a very technical subject, but it's always something I thought I'd do later on in my career. But Gordon Young put me forward in a short list of artists, household names and me as the wild card. There's also Chris who might take it into the future. And so it was was a great honor to do it, but it was something I thought was too soon to do that. I thought this is something more I was going to do later on, but I put my heart and soul into it. It seemed to have resonated.
0: Oh, you can tell, Chris, that you put your heart and soul into it. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about the day itself. But what was your reaction when you got the phone call or the message to say, they're going for you as the wild card? And yes, please.
1: Well, I got a call. I thought it was a friend of mine pulling my leg because i have been asked to do Indian gurus, rock stars. But the idea of doing the Queen as a hologram just seemed far-fetched. And I thought it was my friend and I actually played along with it. (laughs) Turns out it was someone at Jersey Heritage and it was real. And when I got summoned to the National Portrait Gallery to meet the then director, Charles Samurai Smith, I honestly felt that they were going to shoot me down. It's just like, how audacious to think you could do a portrait of the Queen. Where's your big body of portraiture? You know, we can choose anyone we want. And I literally thought I was going to go there to get disappointed. And then, well, it was a fun idea, but not quite ready for that. But actually, they gave me incredible support. And they thought that I would take it somewhere interesting.
0: Well, you certainly did take it somewhere very interesting. What was your thinking before the day? What did you want to achieve?
1: Well, I imagine that I'd be almost told what to create in that because it was an official portrait and for Jersey, I'd need to have Mont Orgyle in the background, the three leopards. There'd have to be all kinds of icons and props and suggestions in the image. And that essentially I'd be kind of working to a very tight brief with all the rings of bureaucracy around the Queen and from Jersey. It was 800 years of history. And, but it was anything but, you know, it was left entirely up to me how I saw the work developing. And I mean, even to the point that, you know, a week before the shoot, I got a call from Angela Kelly, who's the Queen's dresser, to say, what would I like ma'am to wear? It had been in the diary for three years, and I was really relaxed about it and developing it as a project. I wasn't phased by it at all. But in that last week, it suddenly dawned me because it was left entirely up to me. I could have unveiled anything in Jersey when I finally showed the hologram, which Prince Charles unveiled. It was entirely up to me. So I got to go through her wardrobe, the crown jewels. I chose one line of pearls, not three. And essentially what I was trying to do was to really make an icon. You know, it's a word that's used and abused so much nowadays, but I really wanted to distill the image into some kind of essence that it was really resonated with a kind of sense of purity. And so getting to style the Queen, I got to really simplify and really, you know, create an iconic work. And it was daunting, but it was... It could all be great if I create a a good work, but it could all go really wrong and it all comes back on me. So like a lot of the portraits I've done, it's this imposter syndrome. I think, you know, I got away with it again. I seem to have created portraits that people seem to be into. I must be doing something right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think it also says a lot about Her Majesty, doesn't it? That you had such free reign and she clearly felt that she had a lot of trust in whatever you were going to create.
1: Yeah, when I first met her at Buckingham Palace in the Yellow Drawing Room, which I'd, you know, we did a recce and decided that's the one which had the nice natural light. But actually, what I did was completely black it out, and I had incense burning. And like, we'll perhaps well, come on to that a bit later. But really, just going to be one sitting. And when she arrived, wearing the dress that I'd been holding up, thinking, yeah, I think this is the one, that was quite a surreal moment. You know, suddenly it was all an idea, and then suddenly it became quite surreal. I was asked to explain to Her Majesty what I needed of her during the sittings. And as I was talking to her, she wasn't giving anything away. It was quite bizarre and that there were no micro expressions or there's nothing to read. And and I was talking to her and then I was like, I turned to jelly. It all became very surreal and I was listening to myself, almost like I was listening outside my body, watching this scene where I've got the Queen of England in front of me and wearing the dress that I'd been holding a couple of days earlier, and it was just—is this even happening? I mean, it literally pinched me. And they said, "Oh, fine, and let's carry on." So it was just one sitting, and I had to get it right. So you know, it was a fair amount of tension. But after she'd left the room, you know, I'd done a sitting about an hour and a half. I literally lay on the floor, you know, I've, I've done it, hallelujah, so much that could have gone wrong. There was a strange electrical interference on the camera we developed, and George Bush was staying at the palace, so security had never been tighter, and we thought there'd probably be some kind of surveillance tech going on here, and that's interfering with our video camera, and, and then we made a call, just an internal call at the palace to say, you know, we've got this strange interference, is there anything going on that we should know about, and it stopped, and so we never knew exactly what was going on there, but... So I literally lay on the floor, hallelujah, you've done this work. And then one of her aides walks straight back in. I literally have to get up back onto my feet, brush myself down. I said, well, her majesty had enjoyed that. If you like another sitting, you just have to write. So then I had the power of hindsight. Although I was comfortable that I'd got the work in the can, you know, I could look at that, analyze it, and basically make the tweaks and adjustments that from the second sitting, and that's where all the magic happened. It turned out the first sitting, which was the formal commissioned sitting, was just a test run. And she took a personal interest, you know, on the first sitting. Also, she obviously done a research about me. She's obviously had a a kind of package of information about this artist. And she said, I understand you like to experiment with light and you're very innovative in your ways. And it was nice to know that she took a personal interest because I envisaged that she'd be told what to do. There's a portrait, ma'am, on this, such and such a date, but it doesn't. It goes onto her desk and she has to approve it. So on the morning of the first sitting, I got a call was to say that, did I really need the diadem? There'd been an oversight with security, and it was quite complicated to get it next door with all the logistics. As I say, George Bush was staying, security was really tight. Did I really need the diadem? And part of me, the Englishman in me was going to say, well, that's fine, fine, no problem. But luckily, something in me said, actually, no, I do need it. And I'm so glad. And apparently, Angela told me that when the Queen was told about the diadem, she said, well, if he wants the diadem he shall have the diadem and literally Andrew just went across and picked it up and brought it over and you know and i'm glad because it's obviously it was a, an important part to the what i was trying to create
0: was the second sitting the same day or did you go back to the palace for the second sitting
1: no for well, the second sitting i was given a date for the second sitting which was about 3 months later and I can't remember what it was, but there was something where I, this date was inconvenient, actually. I'd look back at it, I can't believe that I didn't move around, whatever it was, I we made it a complication. And uh, they gave me a second date that the Queen could make herself available. And luckily, I got a second date, and it was about three months later. And that's when it all happened.
0: And what do you mean the magic happened on the second sitting? Why was that the one that really came to life, do you think, Chris?
1: Well, I think looking back on it, I think. The first sitting that wasn't really the time for ma'am to have her portrait done there was a lot going on at the time charles was getting in the neck in the press say george bush was staying there there was a lot going on and i don't think she just wasn't in the mood for it And she was quite dour quite difficult to engage with to start with during the sitting the second sitting she was much lighter nice to see you chris and it was really a much more relaxed kind of vibe all around and also i think she was more familiar i mean coming into the first sitting, I mean, she looked into the yellow drawing room, which normally be a a little easel in the corner with all the lights on and all the, you know, natural light. And I had it blackened out. There was incense burning, had a candle, had these strange little light sculptures. And so that might have unnerved her a bit, you know, what was going on the second time around. She understood it. She was familiar with the way we were working and she was just much more relaxed. And also I knew... The second time, exactly what to go for. I mean, for instance, I'd asked for a selection of capes. Unlike a, you know, fashion shoot, you can come in from this angle, you can try that, you can experiment. Here, I was going for the shot. It's quite a technical setup with a 3D camera. It has to move a certain distance in relation to the subject. All the heights and geometry have to be. Reset. So I was going for the shot, but I knew if I changed the cape, I could change the look very quickly. And it's when she put on the ermine, we knew it's like I was just channeling this. And we all knew in the room, my team, that this was it. It was was quite sensational. So the second sitting, I went straight for the ermine. Everyone was relaxed and... I felt I was just channeling something. I still pinch myself some, sometimes, you know, with all the portrait artists there are in the world, the most portrayed women in history. Why me? <laughs> you know, how did that come about? So I think there's a bigger thing going on and I like to kind of tap into these things. I mean, you know, I'm a bit of a mystic. And so I've just made it happen basically and lightness of being and all it says and that it's touched people because it goes into a spiritual realm, regardless of what your feelings are about the monarchy or anything something about it operates at a deeper, more profound level. And that's what I'm trying to tap into in my work.
0: Lightness of Being is the shot that millions of people have seen all over the world where Her Majesty's eyes are closed. And in articles I've read about you, Chris, you've described it almost as an accident. How come Her Majesty's eyes were closed? And how was that the shot? Because she looks so peaceful and calm And relaxed. And it really is clear that she was very comfortable in your incense filled studio on that second shoot.
1: Well, there was a lot of light onto Her Majesty because we were shooting in 3D and the cat, we had this specially designed camera that moved along a track that it took time to reset and recalibrate, reboot the computer. And there's a lot of light onto Her Majesty. And I asked if she'd like to rest in between shots. And she she paused and she rested and I had a camera in the middle to just to take reference shots from the middle of this 3D track. Because one of my ideas was I created a three-dimensional computer model and I could texture map a photograph onto the model. And that'd be one of the ways I could do the 3D. So I had the camera in the middle. So it was a moment of rest, genuine rest, but also in... Timing the camera movement—it was just after I was getting into meditation and feeling, as I then as I do now, that if the world meditated, it'd be a very different place. You know, there'd be more compassion, there'd be no wars, we'd evolve quicker as a species. But one of the main techniques of of meditation is being conscious of your breathing, and so I was very aware of Her Majesty's breathing, so I could time the movement of the camera with her breathe cycle, so it would create a sense of calm in the image. So. I was into that. I was quite evangelical about it at the time. You know, well, I guess I still am, actually. Meditation it has been very helpful to me. It informs my work. As soon as she closed her eyes, and it was, you know, I was right on it. <laughs> that was a moment.
0: Was there any feedback from the Queen about what she thought to your work, and perhaps which image was her favourite?
1: Before I delivered the final work, I wanted Her Majesty. She's a lady. I wanted her to feel flattered about the work. I wanted her to feel comfortable, and so I requested an audience with her. I had actually had two private audiences with her after the sittings to show her the work in progress, and I made a, a short edit. And there were most of the images were very similar, but there were slight nuances to do with you know quite subtle differences, and I wanted to choose the image together, and I also wanted. The title, I felt the title should be Equanimity. Up until that point, my working title had been Serenity. But I felt, you know, given the purpose of the commission and relationship with Jersey, I thought Equanimity inspired out of meditation that title, as was Lightness of Being. But I asked how she felt about that as a formal title. And we spoke about meditation and... And she said that, you know, her meditation was gardening at Balmoral, where she was going the next day and she was looking forward to it. And I remember, she's saying she also there's some terrible trouble with the plumbing at the moment in Balmoral. <laughs> but she took an interest in it. She didn't have to give me those sittings after the first sitting, but, you know, and then the audiences with her. It was really nice. I felt, by the end of it, a genuine affection for her, really connected with her. It was very lovely. And actually, I saw her in July of last year at Windsor. I was invited to an event where it was rumored that she might be attending. And the next thing I know is I'm getting introduced to her. And she'll say how delighted she was that the portraits were being seen everywhere, because this was time of the Jubilee. Anyone who hadn't seen them by then, anywhere in the world had seen these portraits. And, you know, she was clearly very pleased about it. And she had a real glint in her eye. It was a really lovely, yeah, it was a very special moment.
0: That's extraordinary. And lightness of being, and right in thinking, hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, doesn't it, Chris?
1: It does. And equanimity.
0: And equanimity, which is one of Her Majesty with her eyes open. But they've described it as the most evocative image of a royal by any artist. And also Mario Testino said fantastic things about your work. I mean, that's high praise indeed. It must be really lovely to hear people of, of that calibre say such wonderful things, because it really is a very special shot, isn't it?
1: It's definitely touched people around the world. And I think, you know, part of that is that it kind of operates at quite a deep level. You know, I think with the eyes closed, you sometimes go deeper into the subject. With the aura around the image, it's in a spiritual dimension. And I think that's what resonates with people. You, know, you kind of go beyond the physical into something that connects us all. And it's affected a lot of people.
0: And you did The Diamond Queen. The image of the Queen was repurposed in a new work for the Jubilee called The Diamond Queen. Now that featured 1,100 white diamonds, didn't it? Created in partnership with Asprey. That must have been very special to work on too. It was. It's amazing
1: because over the years, you know, one thing just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I originally shot it in 2003, 2004. And then the Diamond Jubilee came up and I was approached by the National Portrait Gallery to say, how did I feel about having my work there planning the biggest show they've ever done? It was to mark celebration of the Diamond Jubilee, the 60 most powerful images ever made of the Queen. And would I consider my work being in the exhibition? Oh, you know, you know oh, go on then. <laughs> and in the end, they kind of opened it with equanimity and they closed it with Lightness of Being next to Lucian Freud and Warhol, Richter, Bacon. It was incredible. But then the platinum jubilee came and then that gave it a, another push around the world but then with her passing it was yeah it just went through through the roof really i remember often you know after the queen people would ask you know well who would you really like to shoot and it was always david bowie and the dalai lama they were the two subjects i really wanted to work with you know the dalai lama the spiritual leader of our time and bowie when i was at art school he was my god in fact and i did do a holographic cd for david bowie but the Dalai Lama doesn't sit for formal portraits. If you think all the pictures you see of him are incidental pictures that people have taken and there's no formal pictures, I put it out there and it'd be my almost like my reflex answer. People, you know, ask who you'd like to shoot. It's always a Dalai Lama. But then I was doing a lot of work down at the Eden Project and sometimes I'd meet Peter, the creative director, halfway in Bristol because I didn't have to go all the way down to Cornwall. He didn't have to call all the way up to London to meet. So we'd meet in Bristol. And so I went to meet Peter off the train, gave him a hug and his phone rang. He said, oh, Chris, I'll just get that. And it was Tibet House. Oh, Peter, it was the curator appointed by Tibet House to oversee the commission of the 80th birthday portrait of the Dalai Lama, knew that Peter knew me. And so he said, oh, I'll try Peter. He perhaps can put us in touch with Chris. He said to Peter, we're trying to contact Chris Levine. And you know him, don't you? Could you put us in touch, perhaps? He said, yeah, here he is. (laughs) That's how that happened. I get goosebumps when I think of that. Literally, I hugged him. His phone rang. It's Tibet House looking for Chris unbelievable.
0: That's incredible. So tell us about photographing. It was the 14th Dalai Lama and you are only the second artist or photographer, I think, to do a formal portrait. If I'm right in thinking Annie Leibovitz did one. That's right. Um, You called yours compassion. Tell me what that was like. And I've kind of got goosebumps as I'm about to hear this story because it would just be extraordinary to be in his presence, I would imagine.
1: It really was. And even more so when (laughs) <laughs> I was in rehab at the time, actually. And my team got messages through to me. We're not supposed to have any communication. That You know, you've, you've got to meet the Dalai Lama. He's, he's agreed to do this portrait. But it was going to be at Glastonbury, because he gave a blessing, if you remember, at Glastonbury. The idea was to do the portrait backstage. And so here I am telling my counselors, oh, you let me out for the day. I just want to go to Glastonbury Festival to take the portrait of the Dalai Lama. Is that, yeah, right, sounded like a... Yeah, sure. Nice story, Chris. Nice try. That's a bit, <laughs> bit far-fetched.
0: Well, it's increased some medication or something like that. No, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't it just, really sound very real, does it? <laughs> it didn't.
1: But in the end, we decided to do it the following day when he was in his hotel. He was flying back to America the next day. And so we set up a studio next to his hotel suite on the top floor. And literally, you know, I think it was about five o'clock in the morning, you know, he came down the corridor. You could hear him chuckling as he came down the corridor. And I had 15 minutes with him to shoot his portrait and I remember he gave me a big hug afterwards and I was buzzing for hours. It was extraordinary. And then I went back to the treatment centre and it was all like, really? Did I just do that? It's like, strange. Because these things seem to happen at extraordinary times in my life. When I was approaching the age that my father died, you know, that I was going to outlive him, I wondered, well, where was I? Because I was feeling quite mortal. I was feeling, you know, where was I actually at the moment when I outlived my father? And I was in Buckingham Palace shooting the Queen. That was pretty bizarre,
0: <laughs> gosh, really, yeah, oh my goodness, It feels like the planets have lined up somehow, Chris, and I think your spiritual side there's something going on there when you were photographing the Dalai Lama, what was he like? Did he chat to you through the shoot, or was he very peaceful or in a meditative state? What was it like?
1: He was lovely, and you think in you know, a lot of interviews I've seen of him since that you you know he might be talking about things that are happening in the earth that really really heavy things, dark things, but he'll always find a silver lining. He'll always find the good in a situation. There's always a silver lining. It's just like a cosmic law and he'll have you chuckling. And he was just so light. And it was just a really magical 15 minutes. We did a group photograph at the end and it was really lovely. And then everyone dispersed. He said, "Now you and me, Chris. And we had a big hug and we captured that moment. And yeah, it was... Another one of those moments.
0: <laughs> I've seen that photograph. Have you got it pride of place somewhere?
1: I uh, probably should have, but no, it's there it's in, and it's in my memory. But often people say, oh, you should get that framed and put it somewhere. But I, don't know, I never get around to doing these kind of things.
0: No, you're too busy. Now, proceeds from sales of Compassion went to charities working with communities affected by the 2015 earthquake in Nepal, which I think killed around 9,000 people. That was a fantastic thing to do. Was that part of the reason the shoot came about, the charity aspect, or was it all centered on his 80th birthday and then?
1: It was both. It was his 80th birthday and Tibet House felt that when we heard a lot of the relief wasn't getting out to some of the more rural areas. So the whole thing just became one objective and raised some considerable sums, yeah.
0: And you do a lot for charity. I was looking on your Instagram the other day and noticed you were giving a piece for Parkinson's. Has that got any particular meaning for you, Chris, or were you approached by the charity behind the work that you are giving?
1: Well, a good friend of mine who I was at school with has Parkinson's and has been working with Cure Parkinson's. Uh, Because a lot of the medical industry, it's really about symptom management. It's not about getting to the core of the cure. And so this charity that Tim had been working with were really making some headway and he invited me to get involved in this exhibition that they were putting together with Bonhams. And so I I made a piece for it. Also with Elton John's AIDS charity, donated several pieces and yeah, it's raised millions of dollars.
0: That's really important. I think that artists do that. There are some fantastically generous artists, aren't there, that we're lucky enough to have here in Britain.
1: It's almost a duty. And I remember when Elton first contacted me to donate the piece for the charity and I looked in the plan chest and these are bits of paper ultimately, but, but one was diamond dust and fluorescent pink queen on it. And that had Elton's name written all over it. And it did very well at the charity. And I've done four or five of them now with, with Elton and it's been a, been a big success.
0: And Bowie, I think, gave you the time of day at art school, didn't he? Was he visiting when you were at art school?
1: It was actually when I was walking home, I was at Chelsea Art School. This was at a time where I was working in the stage bar at the Hamsworth Odeon. I wasn't phased by rock stars and fame and I was serving drinks to them every night, but Bowie was something else. And as it happens, part of my degree show, I'd been developing ways of putting holograms onto CDs and onto kind of moving records, onto turntables. And I wanted to do a project, and it was either with Peter Gabriel or David Bowie. And I'd I'd been reaching out to both of them, and I wasn't getting anything back. And I was literally walking along the road about 100 meters away from where I was living. And I walked past this guy, and blimey, that's David Bowie. And I thought, literally, I I should stop him. I should tell him about the CDs. I've been trying to get in touch with this record company, but I was too nervous. (laughs) And I went into my flat, and I thought, Why didn't I stop? Why didn't I stop him? And I looked out the window, I couldn't see him, so I ran outside. Suddenly I got the nerve to do it and he was gone. I was standing there cursing myself. Why didn't I just stop him? And then he comes out of a dry cleaner behind me, and there he is. There, suddenly, he's in front of me with his assistant Coco, who's written a song about. And I said, "Oh, you'll, you'll never believe this. You know, I've been trying to get in, in touch with you. I've got this idea about putting holograms onto CDs and stuff." And he looked at me and thought, well, you know, some crazy up?" But that's, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I knew that would pique his interest because I knew he would be into it. And so we had a good chat. We were there for about fifteen minutes talking. My opener to him was, "I'm at the same college as." Ed Bell. Ed Bell had done the cover to Scary Monsters and he was at Chelsea too, a bit ahead of me. But I've been developing this idea to put holograms on CDs. And so Coco took my number and said, yeah, we'll be in touch. Don't worry. You know, this is really interesting. So I went back inside. It was feeling very pleased about that. Then I didn't hear anything for a while. And then I, yeah, I got the call. Coco came over to see me. And although actually I was ahead of my time, brilliant idea. Technically it wasn't quite there yet, but then some years later, I did do a hologram on CD. He did a, a soundtrack to a series called Buddha of Suburbia. I did the hologram for the CD for that, and he, you know, and he had to sign the artwork. He had to approve it. And I remember him. He sent me a fax, yeah, Chris. You know, okay, just to approve the artwork. And of course, fax papers—they just all the ink just dissolves, doesn't it? It just bleaches out. <laughs> and you say to look him, trying to find it, and it's just like a white bit of paper. <laughs> Sometime later, I did for Glastonbury, they wanted to mark their association with David Bowie after his passing. Emily Evis commissioned me to do a light installation with a 50-piece orchestra with Charlie Hazelwood conducting. And it was at midnight after Adele at the Park Stage, and it was, well, one of those more goosebumps but it was very special and actually after that she said well let's we got our fiftieth. it went down so well the bbc filmed it and everything it was a big hit and she said well, wow you know we got our 50th anniversary coming up perhaps you could do something that to mark the 50th birthday of glastonbury so i was working on that when we had a, a major production all worked out and we were going to do it it's a big moment for me and then covid <laughs> oh,
0: no, and it never happened no. the
1: plug was pulling glass debris and then the next year so maybe one day i'll go back to do it there but it's uh yeah it's just one of those things
0: there will be other fantastic stuff and you've been working as well with the eden project actually we're featuring the eden project on our podcast in a few weeks time hopefully
1: oh it's, it's an amazing place really so really inspired and, yeah, we did some experimental work f- a few years ago. It was after the Eden Sessions. They have some great acts that play there. And one weekend, after Razorlight, Light, and I think it was after Florence and the Machine, but without the crowd knowing, we took the whole site into blackout. And so people thought it was the end of the song, end of the encore, they're going home. Then the whole site went into blackout. And I worked with Max Eastley, the sound artist, on these sounds, which basically were the sounds of nature, but played at rock show decibels. And they become really abstracted. And these lasers came on, completely unexpected. And so the whole audience, while they're still there, gathered for the, the performance. And it went for five minutes and then suddenly went into a dead mouse track and suddenly the lights came on and everyone was like, what the, What was that? And it went down really well. So we were calling the Eye project and it was really that using light and sound to create experiences with nature that make you realize that you're a part of nature, not apart from it. And they're big collective, almost like bringing big audiences into a collective meditative state using sound and light frequencies. And it's something we've been developing. And with my collaborators, for instance, Rob 3D from Massive Attack, Nick Mulvey, John Hopkins, and working on soundscapes, not music. These are soundscapes using sound energy. Certain frequencies that are shown to really connect with your energy system, the chakra system in the body, and make you feel good. And so, but really playing it, you know, loud and vibrational, good vibrational.
0: Good vibrations. That sounds fantastic. Take me back, Chris. Where does all this come from? Where does your love and fascination with light and your interest in holograms, does this go back to childhood maybe? I think it does.
1: I remember going to see the Science Museum as a kid, and I remember the hologram of Dennis Gabor, the inventor. You switched the button on, and then he appeared, then he disappeared. For me, it just defied logic. I mean, he was there, but but he wasn't. But but he is. He's not. And so while the rest of the class moved on, I was there pressing the button, pressing the button. And it really had a real impact on me. And so when looking for a thesis when I was at Chelsea to do what subject was I going to explore for my thesis? and I started looking at holograms because I felt they had so much potential technically, but they'd seemed to be very much the result of laboratory-led work. It wasn't really an art form. All the examples I'd seen were very kind of laboratory-based works, and they had a high gimmick factor, but they didn't really touch me at an emotive level. But there was something that really caught my attention, and so I used my thesis at Chelsea to really explore who was doing what in the field of holography and then found I got a lot of support. Because when I left Chelsea, I didn't have a job. I've never had a job. It's always been feast and famine, project to project. <laughs> I hustled my way as an artist. But I was determined to, I thought that with the holograms, it had so much potential. So I literally went around my little box of holograms, samples and things. And I found I got a, a lot of support from some of the top technical developers in the field. Because here I was ultimately making the, the work look good I was coming into it from purely visual objectives but I, I had to have this, an understanding of what was realistically achievable I couldn't waste their time and and also it was really expensive and for instance at Loughborough University they sometimes hired out their facility and it's some of the most advanced holography in the world but they hired it out for commercial projects but I had to find the right kind of budget so I got some commissions I remember once for for instance Herx the job company and the image was of a red blood corpuscle coming through a Capillary and they were using it at trade fairs to launch a new blood-thinning medication. Then the next one I did film for Michelin, which is MIT certified, it was the largest glass plate white light hologram ever made. And that was at the National Garden Festival. So I got some commissions to do corporate trade fair kind of displays. You know, that's my like my apprenticeship. They were working to brief. And in the end of it, and I did some interesting work, work that has still not really been surpassed, I think, really, technically, because I was really working with the best holographers in the world. But I found there's a lot of limitations with holography. It's very much a studio exercise. When I got the commission for the portrait of the Queen, it could have been a true hologram, but that would have meant lighting Her Majesty under laser light and there are kind of health and safety issues here. You, know, you, you could blind people with lasers, especially the kind of lasers that we're using to make do portraiture. And also, it meant the Queen would have to come to the lab to do it. We couldn't do it at Buckingham Palace. And I started to think that this could all go wrong. Just on health and safety grounds, I could see that they could pull the plug on it. So I decided to do a, a, use a photographic technique. What we did is we made holograms of the photographic slides. So I was making a hologram of a photographic image and that way it meant I could shoot it in the palace. I could then also have the ability to retouch and, and to work with additional information, because ultimately a true hologram, it's just a one-off piece. You can't take copies of it, you can't scale or reduce it. There's a lot of limitations with the colour, essentially a photographic route and made a, a lenticular, which is often called a hologram. But there's always been a fascination with light, and Einstein says that we are compressed light and everything is energy. What we think of as light in the electromagnetic spectrum is just a little narrow bandwidth of what's going on that our perception is tuned to, but it goes up octaves, it goes down octaves, and slower octaves. Molecular structures form, and then there's there's the physical realm. It's like, if you imagine reality is like different octaves, we're just in a plane in the physical realm. and What I've really found with meditation is that you can transcend that. The particular technique that I practice, Vipassana, they say was Buddha's gift to mankind. And Buddha talked about in terms of light and how fast, how many times it went round the earth. He talked about being a mass of subatomic particles and that when you get still, you, you transcend the idea of the word, for instance, somehow you enter into a deeper realm where you have a clarity and things start to make sense and things align themselves and you get just a deeper sense of reality. And it's like an inner light. Everything is light. I just did a show once called Stillness at the Speed of Light. Because if you get really still and the realization that we're just a mass of subatomic particles vibrating, there's just a wonder in that. And in my work, I'm often trying to get people to a point of stillness into a meditative state. And even if it's just for a moment, there's something you kind of recalibrate. There's something that I would have imploded and it would have been game over for me a long time had I not found meditation. But it's ultimately all about light.
0: The way you talk about meditation makes me really realize that it's got to be something that isn't on my to-do list and then transferred to the following day because I know that I would really enjoy it, benefit from it. I have friends who meditate even just for a few minutes a day and it brings a really wonderful calm to their life. And hearing you talk like you have done there about meditation makes me realize I've got to get on and do it, haven't I? And stop talking about it, Chris, and actually close my eyes and find some space.
1: Oh, it's a beautiful thing this particular form of practice they say you have to do a 10-day retreat of valve silence and it's totally free you just donate according to your means and how it was for you but basically they say 10 days because if you give it a fair trial 10 days and you'll really experience it you can read about it or theorize about it but until you've actually experienced it it means nothing and they say that 10 days for passioner then you will directly experience the benefit of meditation and what it does and i did my first one in 1999 and i've done one almost every year since. And it's like a complete reboot of the system. And every day I meditate, even if it's just for a few minutes. But the more I'm meditating, it's almost like you've got an unfair advantage. There's a clarity and you're working from the point of reality as it is, not as you want it to be. And then you try and fit everything around. You start with things as they are, and then you move forward.
0: Sounds a great place to start. I was just thinking, just going back to the yellow drawing room at Buckingham Palace, I mean, when you're working with subjects, there's a responsibility from your point of view to make that subject feel relaxed. But of course, when you were photographing or doing the piece with Her Majesty the Queen, obviously your heart's in your mouth because of the subject matter. How do you think you each relaxed each other, if you like?
1: Well, I was very conscious of her breathing and but I had these devices in the room, like the light was really subdued. I had a candle. This is the presence of a candle, it's almost like a sacred kind of feeling to that. I didn't use it with Her Majesty, but for instance with Serrano Fines, I actually had a, a speaker underneath his chair which had a vibration at one three six point one hertz, which is the frequency of Om. And it's very low frequency. You can barely hear it, but it has a palpable effect on you and i remember with her majesty i needed her to look into the distance and not get phased by the camera moving across in front of her sometimes there's a tendency to watch the camera go past so i created an ultraviolet cross which i've asked ma'am to fix her gaze onto so it's behind the camera so if you look at equanimity with her eyes open it's like she's looking straight through you because she's literally looking straight beyond the camera at this cross she's head of the church of england her eyes were fixed on the the ultraviolet crucifix and just kind of tuning in these different parameters just to create something very still with a positive vibration about it. Calming.
0: And what about for Kate Moss? She danced in your lights, didn't she, Kate, for her (laughs) 40th? What was that like working with her and what little techniques did you use? I mean, obviously Kate's used to being photographed by photographers all over the world, but again, everybody needs to be relaxed for each shoot, don't they?
1: Well, and also particularly as it's really my thing, really, what I'm trying to do when I take a portrait of someone is capture their inner beauty. Now we all know Kate's beautiful. There's just something about the geometry of her face. It just makes her so hyper photogenic. So I had light installations and I had light, I was using laser as well with, with Kate, light forms that were kind of you to a point of calmness. So what I was trying to do with Kate was, we all know her, all that vitality and fun and all the big fashion energy around what we expect of Kate in an image. But I wanted to contrast that with Kate in stillness. And I thought that would be a really interesting, like with Grace Jones. Grace capturing stillness at the speed of light, that was my title of the show with with Grace Jones, was to capture that huge energy, but contrast it with absolute stillness. And then that would give the image a real power And so with Kate and Her Majesty and all my subjects, you know, I tried to create a scene that will get them to that stillness where they reveal something from the inside and not just about their physical beauty.
0: Are the light performances and exhibitions a lot of fun for you? You've staged them at Radio City in New York, commissioned by MoMA, the Eden Project we've mentioned, the Royal Opera House, London's Fine Arts Society. Are they fantastic fun to plan and actually deliver?
1: Well, they're big productions, and the vision gets bigger and bigger, and it involves a lot of people. Often, you don't see the results until you're there on site, and then there's a moment where light goes down, because we have to work at night programming the lasers, and you can't see it during the days. And when the lasers eventually come on, then I realise, this is why I do this. There's something really powerful, particularly with what we've been developing with the sound and light, using these frequencies and vibrations. I'm hoping to take this work We're looking at sites like Giza, Stonehenge, sacred sites where we're kind of tapping into earth energy and connecting an audience with the geometry of the way that the earth energy is working with their attention onto the light structures. And then if we pull people all together, that I'm no scientist, but that has to have a powerful effect. So it's really experiential work. And for me, it's why I do what I do. The portraits were born out of the work I was doing with light. Gordon Young had seen the work I was doing, experimenting with light, and thought, well, apply that to portraiture. He would do something really interesting with the Queen. So the Queen, my portraits with the Queen, are born out of my work with light, and where my vision for where I want to take the work with light. Because laser, we think of high-end technology and everything, but really, laser to me is just a very pure form of light. It's just a single frequency of light. And we don't normally experience that. We're bombarded with light, and we composite them to make different colours, and everything is light but very rare that we see light so pure as a one frequency that laser dot can look so red because it is just one frequency of red and ever since i first saw my first laser it touched me (laughs) you know but it's something primal about it
0: any shows coming up chris that we can look forward to where we can see the lasers and see some of your light at work
1: well i did a a show last year at houghton hall and it was a great honour you know I was the seventh artist in the series which had included Anish Kapoor Damien Hirst Henry Moore James Terrell so I did the show and that really made waves and some of those waves now are two museum shows I'm looking at so this year it's all about development I mentioned Stonehenge I'm really excited can't say too much now but I have a strong vision for what I'd like to do at Stonehenge to put it that way so it's I'm in development for some really interesting work I mean Houghton like the Queen was a game changer for me so I think I will look one back day and think it was like pre Houghton hall and after Houghton hall. I'm definitely in the post Houghton period now. And there's some interesting and I'm big outdoor light installations. Uh, yeah, they really turn me on.
0: I hope that I can come and see one of those light installations. And I know you can't say a lot about Stonehenge, but if you're doing anything there, I will definitely be coming to have a look. It's been really, really lovely chatting to you. I was reading a bit of a quirky interview, I think you did with GQ. And one thing that really resonated with me in that interview was that you said that, like I think, socks should be sold in threes. (laughs) And I thought, I know, that having read that, I'm going to really enjoy Chris's company. Because I agree with you, socks definitely should be sold in threes. We'd actually have more to wear in our household. Obviously. Obviously, obviously. Honestly, it's really been an honour and today we've been recording remotely, but I know we're going to meet for a a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and perhaps come and have a peek around in in your studio in London, which would be lovely if, if you'll have me yeah do that absolutely thank you so much Chris of course
1: I've enjoyed it thank you
0: good 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 And you've been listening to light artist Chris Levine perhaps best known for his breathtaking portraits of a majesty the queen as well as a rare portrait of the Dalai Lama to mark his 80th birthday I hope you've enjoyed Chris's stories about his work as much as I have and perhaps you'll find time to see some of it in person at London's National Portrait Gallery I'd highly recommend you do that download our series at Convex Podbean.com, or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, basically wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so bye for now.